We'll hear argument now in number 99-166, United States versus Webster-Hubble. Mr. Mann. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents a question about the privilege against self-incrimination in the context of the compelled production of documents. Specifically, does the privilege extend not only to the compelled testimonial communications, the witnesses' admissions that the documents exist, that they're in his possession, and that they respond to the subpoena, but also to other voluntarily recorded information that is contained in the documents. Now, it's common ground that the contents of the documents were not privileged before the compulsion. Although they would have been privileged under Boyd, your decision in Fisher rejected that view. The issue before the Court today, then, is whether the way in which the government obtained those documents through a compelled act of production taints what otherwise would not be privileged. Now, Respondent gives us a categorical answer that any compelled testimonial admission of existence always automatically taints the contents of the produced documents. How how long was the witness before the grand jury to explain all these documents? Um, It would have been a matter of just a few minutes, and the the, uh, uh, questions that were asked in the grand jury are the questions that we ask typically pursuant to the U.S. Attorney's Manual. It's basically uh, restating the things that are the implicit testimonial admissions that the Court identified in Fisher. He, he was there for just a few minutes? I, I, the testimony was, was for just a few minutes. I really don't know how long he was actually, you know, in the grand jury. I thought that he had to identify each document. And obviously what I'm concerned with is if, if you have a witness before a grand jury for any length of period, some grand juries say, oh, he looks shifty or he's not looking me in the eye, all the things jurors think about. And it, it, and it seems to me that you, there is a high degree of risk involved when you have a subpoena of this scope and of this sort, a risk of incriminating the person's uh, person through his testimony. Well, I think that that's true, um, but I think that in this particular case, and I think in most cases where you have a production of documents, um, you have to distinguish between the things that the witness is forced to say, implicitly or explicitly, and in this case I think those things were much the same, and the contents of the documents. And in this case, and I think in many cases, We don't have to use, and we didn't use in any way, any of the things that he said. I mean, all we're using is the information that was in the documents. I think the the key for us to this case is that it's not relevant that we got the documents from respondent. Well, but did you, did the government know about the contents of the documents ahead of time? No, we we absolutely did not know about the contents of the documents. You had no idea what what you were going to find. Well, I mean, I think no idea is probably something of a stretch, but we certainly are not in a position to prove that we knew with reasonable particularity what the documents were. It was only by virtue of the production of the documents that you learned uh, the facts that enabled you to then carry out a prosecution. That's absolutely right, but I think it's important to, to remember that it's clear in the cases that the Court has had since Castigar in Fisher and in the other cases interpreting the statute that it's not a problem for the government to show that we would not have the incriminating information but for the compelled act of production. It's perfectly clear that there are circumstances in which we can force a witness to speak. What do you have to show, that you had an independent source of the information, or what? What is it? Well, I think think analytically that's a good way to put it. Castigar, of course, does say that the Fifth Amendment permits the government to use things that it gets from an independent source. We look at Fisher as explaining that the act of production has a twofold nature. 
that the act of production itself is physical, non-testimonial Mr. Mann, conduct. Uh, you didn't answer Justice O'Connor's question. What do you have to show? Well, I think what we you have, have to show sh- anything. I think what we — I don't think we have to show anything about our quantum of knowledge of the contents of the document. What do you have to show? I think we have to show, once that — under Castigar, once a defendant uh, shows that he's been compelled to testify, the burden shifts to us to show that we did not use any of his compelled testimonial communications. And in no, this I'm context — No, I'm asking, do you have to show anything before you serve the subpoena or to get the subpoena? Oh, well, to get the subpoena, we have to satisfy the regular standard under our enterprises and then the regular standard under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure to show that we have a basis for uh, showing the subpoena. And that standard is, is not difficult for grand juries to satisfy. Well, do you have to show anything uh, in addition in order to uh, satisfy the Fifth Amendment, that you have that, that these are documents or, or items that everyone knows exist, something like that? No, I, I think we do not. I mean, the, the, if we don't, uh, if we don't know anything about the contents of the documents, that does not, in any way, it seems to me, affect the logical relation between the things he says when he's under compulsion. So, if everybody and, knows that the defendant, the target, has guns in his house, you can uh, have a subpoena say, "Bring all guns that are in your house to the grand jury." I think that that's perfectly permissible under the court's decisions in Schmerber. I mean, I, I, well, how, how, do you, how do you distinguish? What is magical about documents? I, let, let, let's, let's use a gun. Suppose, suppose there's a murder. You, you, you have the bullet that caused the death, and you, you also know that the defendant uh, has uh, purchased a gun of the same caliber. You serve a subpoena on the defendant saying, turn over this gun, which, which you, you, you are shown, we know you own it. Um, are you entitled to get that gun? Yes. Now, let me explain. See, that's exactly the And then point. You, you get the gun, you do a ballistics test on it, you find that that is indeed the bullet that, that caused the murder, and, and this well, has not been compelled testimony? The difficulty, of course, in that case is it might be that we would have difficulty in proving that the gun had been in the possession of the defendant if that was relevant to us. But if we independently can match up the gun to it's the It's registered. Defendant. He bought it from a, you know, in a state where all handguns uh, purchases have to be registered. But, see, that goes to your initial thing. You said, what's special about documents? I think that what Fisher establishes is there's nothing special about documents. What the Constitution does is what? it breaks up production of evidence into two classes. That's fine. You're, you're accepting my gun hypothetical, and you say that the government is entitled to demand of the defendant who has squirreled away the gun. He's actually the murderer. He's hidden the gun somewhere. Well, now, of course, the government can come to him and say, turn over the gun with which you committed the murder. Well, I guess I'm... And then you can introduce it in evidence and use it against him at trial, It's it's obviously more difficult for the government if the government subpoena says, turn over the gun with which you committed the murder, because they're going to have a heavier... They don't say that. We say, suppose that the subpoena says, turn over all guns in your possession. Not all guns, just just this gun, the 38 caliber... Uh, automatic that you are shown to have purchased. Okay. I would respond to you with the hypothetical that Justice Stevens has in his dissent in the second Doe case, where he po- in, in, which the Court accepted as being the line that you've drawn in your cases past Schmerber. If what we do is we tell the fun- defendant, give us the key to the strong box. It's full of incriminating documents. The answer is he has to give us the key. If we tell him, tell us the combination to the safe, we can't make him do that. What the Constitution says is it doesn't care what we get. It doesn't care where we get it. It doesn't matter if we get it from the defendant. The government has a right to every man's evidence, the court in Castigar emphasized. What it cares about is how we get it. If we get the evidence by forcing the defendant to tell it to us, if we force him to restate, repeat, or affirm the information, well, then we lose. And so if we make him tell us the combination to the safe, if we make him tell us 
the information we want, well, then we lose. But if what we do is we force him to the physical act of handing it to us, that's permissible. You can't make him tell you where the gun is. You can only make him go get the gun and give it to you. Absolutely. And, and you, you think that that is a sensible distinction? I think it's a distinction that the Court has had to draw. If you look at the opinions in Schmerber and Castigar, the Court looks at two important policies founded in our history. One policy is the principle that the government has the right to every man's evidence, and the Court talks at great length about how important this is. Well, that's, your, that's, time, your, Schmer, that's your Schmerber point, but I don't see how Schmerber is, is, is helpful to you here, because Schmerber, the, the instance in which the individual, in effect, makes his bodily body available for the drawing of the blood sample and so on. Schmerba does not in, uh, uh, in involve the implicit representations that are made, for example, in this case when the documents are produced, or in Justice Scalia's hypothetical uh, when the individual implicitly indicates that, yes, the gun is in his possession by, by turning it over. I, I don't see Schmerber as being helped to you at all. Well, Schmerber involves, I think, a unitary act of production, and according to the court in Schmerber, it was, that one was analyzed as wholly non-testimonial. So what we have today is an act of production that, under Fisher, has two natures to it. It's a physical, non-testimonial act of production. At the same time, it has implicit within it a testimonial communication. And so the question for the court is to, to decide, although the act is not privileged, the communications are. And so what you have to decide is, do the contents of the documents come from the testimonial portion of the act, or do they come from well, the Well, they, I, I think the documents that were subpoenaed here may be an easier case for you than Justice Scalia's gun hypothesis, because presumably virtually anyone has tax records and uh, accounting records. Uh, it, it, it's no uh, confession to say that to, to say that those exist and that they're in the person's possession, and I, I think that goes to our sec, the second question presented, which the second question presented um, uh, suggests that if the quantum of evidence that we have about the documents reaches a certain level, then uh, uh, then it's a then it's a foregone conclusion that he has them. And our view is that what Fisher says is that if we're asking for simple business records, the Fifth Amendment simply isn't implicated in the same and way. And you are you stretching uh, Fisher, which Fisher was specific documents that had been in the hands of the accountant, specific documents that the accountant used to file tax returns. It says, turn those documents, lawyer, over to the grand jury. They went from the client to the accountant to the lawyer. But that was documents used by the accountant to file tax returns. This subpoena is far more sweeping and seems to resemble the one in Doe 1 much more than the one in Fisher. So if we're just going by what the Court held in those two cases, Fisher, particular documents, Doe, broader uh, documentary disclosure, generically described, as in this case, then one would say, well, if we just go on how the Court came out at the end of the line in Fisher, the government lost, the government won, and in Doe 1, the government lost. This case is more like Doe 1, end of the case. Well, on the foregone conclusion point, that may be true, um, if you look, if you look at it that way, but I think one problem with that analysis is that in Doe 1, the court, of course, did not itself examine the subpoena. The court's opinion says that it's accepting the factual findings of the lower court and accepting the lower court's view on that. And that's not really the question that the court addresses. But in any event, but I mean, the I think court it, had the subpoena before it, and it was one of these sweeping subpoenas that asked for all kinds of documents. Well, well with all due respect, I don't think it, I don't think that, that the subpoena here 
is significantly broader than the subpoena in Fisher. But I think the most important point is to emphasize the relation between the foregone conclusion doctrine that's at the heart of Justice O'Connor's question and your question and the principal question that w- that's presented in this case. Because our, our, our main submission is that even if we would not prevail in the foregone conclusion doctrine, so even if this uh, production includes a testimonial incriminating admission, the, the, the important point in the case is to decide whether the contents of the documents are derived from that communication. And on that point, I think we're on very solid ground under Fisher. Uh, and it, under going just back to the gun hypothetical, I, I give you two hypotheticals. Subpoena A, produce all the guns that are in your possession, and it's generally known that the man has lots of guns. Subpoena B, produce the Smith & Wesson 38 with the ivory handles and the initial K. Difference in those two cases? No, our view is that in either case we can get him to produce in either case, he's required to provide the guns to us. Now, we have obtained from him a slightly different testimonial admission in the two cases, um, but in most okay. prosecutions, it strikes me that, that neither of those will be well, important. Mr. Mann, let, let me ask you this uh, in relation to the gun. If you were to get a search warrant and go out and search the residence for a gun, what would you have to show the magistrate to get that warrant? Well, I think we probably would have to show — well, we obviously would have to show probable cause. And the question is, what would probable cause require? And I think in most cases, probable cause would require considerably less than — Some reason to think that uh, he has something that you might find that's relevant to the crime. Absolutely. And do you think you have to show more or less to issue a subpoena to say, give me all your guns? Well, we, we obviously have to show less to get a subpoena, but the reason for that is because when you get a search warrant, you're going out into somebody's house. You're intruding in somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy in their home, and so the court has articulated a relatively high standard for that relatively intrusive method of obtaining information from citizens. Yes, but what the, pers- what the person being searched really cares about is the fact that you are intruding for the purpose of getting evidence. The concern of the person who objects in, in so far as the criminal courts are concerned, is exactly the same in each instance. But the concern of the Constitution is entirely different. The Constitution is not the least bit concerned if we prosecute and convict somebody by evidence that we compulsorily obtain from him. That is completely legitimate. That is emphasized repeatedly. Mr. Man, I just uh, supplement the question just that Kennedy asked about a specific gun and all guns in your house. What if you don't have any idea that a person ever owned a gun or had it? Could you serve him with a subpoena and say, please produce all the guns in your possession? I, I, I think that's because he's a suspect in the case. Well, now, see, once you say that he's a suspect in the case, I think at that point you're saying that we have some reason to suspect him, which probably is enough reason to issue a subpoena. You can't but say you that have you have to prove that he, you had some. What, what does it take to be a suspect in the case? Well, it takes you just have a hunch. This fellow, well, he's a bad guy. He might have some guns. Can you go out and serve a subpoena on him? Well, yes. I mean, I think I think the hunch I is the R Enterprises standard. And ask for all his guns. Under the R Enterprises standard, I think that having a hunch is more or less what the standard is. I mean, the court the court looks at this and says. Grand juries traditionally have had very broad investigatory powers, and the, the uh, requirements of knowledge up front to get to uh, issue subpoenas are relatively small. The, the key for us is this is not uh, a testimonial communication. The Act might include but, but one. But if, if it's that broad, why has it been so rarely used in the past? Well, it's, it's not at all clear, I think, that it's been rarely used. I mean, for one thing, um, in your own decisions, you'll see that we have been up here um, several times since Fisher presenting more or less the same question to you. Um, it's re- the, the implications of a compelled production of documents have been up here several times. Um, 
Another problem you would see to the extent that it's not used as frequently as you might expect is, of course, the law is really quite uncertain. And any time you do this, you're likely to be faced with what the court uh, discussed in Braswell, which is once we force him to say something that includes any compelled testimonial admission, we're faced with a Castigar hearing, which is going to slow down a prosecution. If we can obtain evidence in a way that we know is completely uh, permissible, which we can't do in this area ever at the moment, then we don't have to worry about a Castigar hearing. I mean, I think a real problem is that law is very uncertain, but even with the uncertainty, there have been enough prosecutions that this issue has been coming up to the court repeatedly since Fisher. Mr. Mann, may I ask a question about the, uh, the initially the Fifth Amendment privilege was claimed. You said, okay, we give you immunity. We give you use immunity. If I understand your position, what you gave, the immunity that you gave immunized nothing. And if that's the case, wasn't there a certain deception involved in saying, okay, yeah, he's got a Fifth Amendment privilege, we give him immunity, and then the immunity shields nothing? Well, I don't think that that's right. I think that the immunity we gave is the immunity that the statute grants, and the genius of the statute is that it avoids the necessity to litigate at the time of a production. What, over did, the, what did the immunity uh, give to Hubble? I mean, in this particular case, the immunity would prevent us from introducing into evidence or using in our investigation the fact that Mr. Hubble possessed these documents. It would prevent us from using in the well, investigation. Isn't it obvious if they're the papers that were used? To, to build, to, to make tax records, that his phone records, his, um, his schedule, that they obviously came from him? Well, if it's, evident, if it's evident on their face that they came from him, then that might mean we don't need to use his testimonial communication against him. But that's a harder question that's not presented here, because here we have no need to establish that these documents came from him. These are not offenses as for which his possession of these documents has the least bit of relevance. If we had to establish his possession of these pieces of paper, we would have something of a Castigar problem. And well, I then his, but his production of them. Yeah, if, if, if his production of them is incriminating. He that, that, would be a, that would be a problem for us. I mean, my general th- theory would be we would lose. If we had to prove that he possessed these documents and his production was the best way to do it, we would lose. I mean, no, assume, for but example, the very fact that you are using these documents rests upon the fact uh, that in, in — and or you — I'm strike that. The very fact that you were using the information that you gained from these documents rests upon the fact that on the production of the documents, their existence and authenticity were represented to you. Uh, you are not directly proving possession, and you are not directly proving the authenticity by use of the production. But what you do use, you are using as a result of the production, which has these implications. And so it seems to me it's very difficult for you to argue that the use that you are making is not a use which is dependent upon the uh, the representational aspect of the production. I I think it's actually quite easy for us to argue, and I think it's easy for the reason that you said. We're using these things because he produced them to us. He produced them to us in the same way he would produce a handwriting exemplar or something else. I think at the heart of the case is just a judgment call. Did we force him to give us the documents, which is perfectly permissible, or did we force him to tell us the information? We didn't force him to tell us anything of value. Everything of value in the documents is information that was voluntarily recorded long before we brought compulsion to Well, your position then is basically that your this situation is no different for you than if you had found the documents on the doorstep of the Justice Department. Yeah, that's exactly right. If, if I may reserve the rest of my time. Very well, Mr. Mann. Uh, Mr. Dreven, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
To properly assess the effect of the, a grant of use immunity in a documentary subpoena context, it's necessary to separate out the two components of what is compelled by the subpoena. First, the subpoena compels a physical act, the transfer of documents from the witness to the government. Second, the subpoena also compels the witness to make certain implicit testimonial admissions about that the responsive documents exist, that they are in his possession, uh, and that the um, production to the government will transfer the documents to the government. Now, the witness is protected by the Fifth Amendment only with respect to the testimonial components of the act of production, not with respect to the physical act itself. Mr. Dreeben, I I gather that means that your answer to my hypothetical earlier would be that there is no Fifth Amendment problem in requiring a person uh, to turn over the handgun which which, uh, was used in the commission of a murder. No, Justice Scalia. I think that there's a substantial Fifth Amendment claim that the witness has that possession of that handgun is highly incriminating. And as a result, the witness can assert the Fifth Amendment and require the government to give the witness act of production immunity if the government wishes to enforce the subpoena. The question But then the only comes, thing the government can't use is the fact that he turned it over to prove that he possessed it. The government could come in and show the record that he purchased it, and, uh, and, and leave it to the jury to surmise that he still continued to have it at the time of the murder, right? Well, the government has to show that it ha- does not use anything testimonial in the investigation that leads up to the prosecution. But the government could show at the trial that the murder was committed with a handgun that had been purchased by Mr. X. It would need to do at least that, and it would also need to show that it did not make use as an investigatory lead of its knowledge that this witness possessed the particular item. Could we go to the other part of Justice Kennedy's hypothetical? I I understand and will assume you're right on two things. I assume that the problem of knowing that there's a reasonable possibility that the person has material like this is a kind of Fourth Amendment problem that may be in Rule 17 in some cases of the Court, but don't concern us here. I put it to the side. I'm also putting to the side and assuming you're absolutely right that you can get the single gun that you know is exists and just give him the production immunity. But there's a second assertion here. One is the assertion, I have the thing. Okay? We give him use immunity for that. The other is the assertion, the thing exists. Now, in respect to that statement, the thing exists, it creates a problem only where you are subpoenaing hundreds of things. Because if you ask for a year's worth of tax checks, it's certainly very possible that four of those checks, unbeknownst to you, turn out to be pure gold. That's why they have a subpoena. And you didn't know before he brought these into the room that those four checks existed. All you asked for were all his tax records. Now, every case that we've had, including Doe 1, which is what Justice Ginsburg pointed out, suggests that there is a Fifth Amendment problem in that statement, the thing exists. 
And where the government doesn't independently know that the thing exists, they are using the testimonial response to the question, does that thing exist? Now, that seems to me to be the problem that the Second Circuit, that that this circuit, that Doe won, that our Fisher use of the word existence, et cetera, is uh, is, uh, focusing on. And I'd like you to focus on that. Justice Breyer, I think, first of all, the, the notion that the subpoena respondent says the thing exists is not a meaningful statement and is not one that the Court's cases actually contemplate as being the testimonial statement. I realize the Court has said that, but the only meaningful statement that a respondent can make is that responsive documents exist, which is a way of correlating what the subpoena calls for with what the documents actually say. And the government may not make use of the mental act that the witness uses to correlate documents with a subpoena. That is most significant and most important when the document itself is, for example, a list of numbers and the witness produces it under a subpoena specification that calls for, give me all itemizations of your income. In such a case, we cannot interpret the document or make use of it without taking advantage of the witness's mental faculties. Do you know how long the defendant was before the grand jury? I don't. This was not our prosecution, Justice Kennedy. Well, I, I, I understand that, but I, I, I can't seem to get an answer. I, we were told, oh, just a few minutes, but it takes me more than a few minutes just to read through the whole subpoena on page 47 and 49, and I understood that they asked him with reference to each paragraph of the subpoena, have you produced these documents, which means that there's a very high risk that you're going to be probing the perception, the cognition, the memory, uh, the knowledge of this witness. And we're talking about risk here, it seems to me, in large part. Well, I think the case comes to the Court, Justice Kennedy, on the assumption that the the actions of Mr. Hubble sitting in the grand jury do not change the essential testimonial representations. The case comes before the Court on the assumption that you can use this subpoena of this breadth in every drug prosecution that the government brings, as I understand it. And the result of that is that we would be — I think there's a very serious problem of prosecutorial overreaching with that. The problem exists if we make use of what is testimonial in what the witness is compelled to do. If we do not make use of what is testimony, we are not trenching on Fifth Amendment values. It's very odd to me, in response to Justice O'Connor, the uh, counsel conceded, as he must, that you have to have probable cause. Uh, you can now have a witness come live, a target of an investigation before a grand jury, with less than probable cause. That's, that's astounding to me. Well, we can bring witnesses before the grand jury with less than probable cause. The very purpose of the grand jury is to determine whether probable cause well, exists. Well, I, 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 I understand that. But with reference to uh, requiring them as well to bring documents of, of covering a tremendously broad description. I think the, the essential position that we have taken responds to the fact that in Fisher and in Doe, this Court overruled the doctrine of Boyd under which the notion was that the contents of the documents themselves were testimonial and that a witness was being compelled to testify by producing those contents. What Fisher and Doe require the Court to do is separate out that which is testimonial in an act of production from that which is not. Would your argument change if the defendant were before the grand jury for three hours responding to every paragraph of the subpoena to see if he complied with it? The argument would change only insofar as there is a greater chance that more testimony that is protected would go before the grand jury and potentially So we are concerned with risk? Yes. Mr. Dreeben, um, 
I've, I had the, have been making the assumption that the government uh, makes use of Section 6002 immunity provisions to compel testimony from witnesses, largely in a third-party context. In other words, getting evidence that way from a third party to use against another criminal defendant. How often does the government turn around and prosecute the very person who's given the immunity under Section 6002? Is that unusual at all? It is relatively unusual, but far from unheard of. And one of the principal reasons why it is not done is that under our view of the law, there is still a significant castigar issue that the government has to get over. If we show that we made no use whatsoever of any of the act of production, but only the contents of the records, that's fine. But it may be very difficult to show that if the witness produces records that take on their meaning only from being correlated with the subpoena or which suggests that he had knowledge of their contents. Well, and, and, and the language of Section 6002 itself is sort of broad. No other information compelled under the order or information directly or indirectly derived from it may be used against the witness. I mean, that's pretty broad. This Court said in Castigar and also in United States versus Applebaum, which is at 445 U.S. 115, that 6002 was intended to go as far as but no further than the Fifth Amendment. What the well, certainly that language goes pretty far, doesn't it? Well, the language, I think, was written against a backdrop of Boyd in which the contents of the records were protected. And so if the witness were compelled to produce uh, private papers that he'd created, that created a Fifth Amendment issue. But the intent of the statute and this Court's construction of it has been to make it coextensive with the Fifth Amendment. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Uh, Mr. Niels, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. My client was indicted in this case, at least in part, as a result of the fact that under immunity, he told the truth. The thing that he told the truth about was what documents he had that were responsive to the subpoena. If he had been untruthful and withheld those documents, the independent counsel wouldn't have had them. But instead, he told the truth, turned them over, and the independent counsel used those documents to bring this case. Choice except to tell the truth. Did he when he's before the grand jury? No, and that was because he had asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege, respectfully declining to state whether he had any documents, and he was compelled to state whether he had any by the immunity order. And then, Your Honor, that's absolutely right, but, but with an immunity order, the government is required to hold the defendant harmless from the truth that he tells. And in this case, instead of holding him harmless, they use the documents that he revealed to them, truthfully revealed to them, to bring this indictment. Justice Kennedy, in response to your question, he, he was in front of the grand jury for 17 minutes. And the reason he was there for that length of time is that they needed him to tell them what documents he had that were responsive. Mr. Niels, what, what is your position with respect to your client's uh, production? What, what, what was the incriminating aspect of it? The incriminating aspect of it was that he told them what documents existed and were in his possession. 
Uh, you, you, you mean he, he, he told them by speaking, not just by producing? Both. Uh, in, in all cases, a witness will uh, answer the question, the effective question, what documents do you have? What incriminating documents do you have that are responsive? He t- answers that question by producing or not producing documents. And how did, how did that incriminate him? It led the government to get incriminating documents. Well, but is they, that the test? I don't think that's the test laid down in Fisher. Fisher doesn't uh, deal, of course, with immunity. But what Fisher says is that the, the testimony that is involved, and then the first thing that it says, is the testimony involved is that the documents exist and are in the witness's possession. Because everybody who responds to a subpoena is required to say, tell the government what documents he has well, what if the government subpoenas uh, income tax, uh, copies of income tax forms and records? The, they don't ask for incriminating anything. Give me your income tax forms and records for years five and six. Um, I would have to answer that in two parts. The first question is whether there's testimony, and that depends on whether possession of income tax returns is a foregone conclusion. Well, for most people it is. Is it it or isn't it? It may be. The case, the the only case I'm aware of um, decided in the courts of appeals has held that it's not a foregone conclusion that the person has kept a copy because there is no legal obligation to keep a copy. But but that is a close question, I would submit. But in answer to, I think, uh, Mr. Chief Justice's uh, question, the point is this that the Fifth Amendment, since 1892, has protected a person from making disclosures or statements. The Fifth Amendment was adopted in 1791. I think what happened in 1892? Councilman against Hitchcock was decided, Your Honor, and this court — That presumably interpreted the the law uh, rather than changed it. You're correct, I believe, since the adoption of the Bill of Rights. But this court pronounced in Councilman — that a witness is privileged from giving testimony that is innocuous in itself that will lead the government to obtain other incriminating evidence. And and what what happens in these document subpoena cases or the gun subpoena case is that it, it may or may not be incriminating for the witness to say this document exists. But if the document is one which will cause him to lose his liberty, and if the government only gets it from him because he truthfully discloses in response to the subpoena that it exists, then that is privileged. Well, why doesn't that apply to your in, to the income tax uh, question that Justice O'Connor said? Give me your income tax return for the year X. It, it well, does. The government says we've lost ours. Give us yours. It does. The reasoning applies perfectly unless well, but the court holds that it's a foregone conclusion that he possessed it, in which case the court holds. I, I stipulate to that. It's a foregone conclusion. You've got a copy of your tax return. Then there's no testimony involved at all, so we don't even get to the question of incrimination. Well, right, but that, that, that just didn't fit your, your your nice summary that you gave. It seemed to me you, uh, he is being convicted because he truthfully complied with a subpoena, and they wouldn't have had the information otherwise. So then your, your test doesn't quite work. It, it, I believe it does, but it needs a little more explanation. The court in Fisher 
says that uh, the key question is, are you relying on the witness's truth-telling to get the document? And Fisher says if it's a foregone conclusion that he has it, and Fisher, the, the parties had admitted that they had it, if it's a foregone conclusion, then you're not relying on the witness's truth-telling. All right, but in any case where it's not a foregone conclusion, that this particular document, and mean, why stop there? That the words on this particular document are precisely what they are. In any case where it isn't a foregone conclusion, i.e., where the prosecutor doesn't already know, on the line that is being taken with this word existence, it becomes testimonial and the, uh, the Fifth Amendment privilege applies. Correct. All right. Well, then we're back, uh, overruling Fisher, yeah. back to Boyd, uh, and not only Boyd, well beyond Boyd, uh, because exactly as uh, Justice Scalia pointed out, it's exactly the same thing, whether it's a document or not. Uh, it's exactly the same thing with any piece of evidence whatsoever. The only uh, time that you would be able to compel a person uh, to produce that evidence in court is when it is a foregone conclusion that he already has precisely that thing. Yes. That's very far-reaching and, and seems contrary. Is there a — I mean, suppose the Court decides we're not going to overrule Fisher. I agree that the logic of it is right in that word existence, in Fisher, but you can't sort of assume Fisher intends to blow itself up. Well, I mean, Fisher, Fisher is, is, I believe, quite clear that the, the relevant language in Fisher is, is the language that says — that the existence and possession of the documents are a foregone conclusion. Yes, that's and right. therefore, but it's the therefore, we're not relying Good, but we're on exactly the same track. Okay. And, and what I'm searching for and have been unable to find, you see, we're absolutely eye to eye as far as the logic is concerned. Okay. And, and I'm searching, is there some kind of test in respect to existence that isn't as weak as the possible reasonable possibility test, which may be a Rule 17 or Fourth Amendment test under the Fourth Amendment or something like that, but isn't as strong as foregone conclusion and gives some meaning to these cases. It would, that's what she's driving — that's what they're driving at by reasonable particularity. Yes. But, but that's a, a sort of illogical compromise. I mean, what do we do? I, I think what you do is uh, — I would do two things. One, the principle — is whether you're relying on the truth-telling of the witness to find out that the document exists. That's the principle. Are you relying on the truth-telling of the witness? That's testimony. That's Fifth Amendment language. Testimony, truth-telling. That's the issue. And if you are, if you're compelling a person to tell the truth with the consequence that he loses his liberty, you have a Fifth Amendment problem. Well, why do you emphasize uh, truth-telling, Mr. I mean, a witness can speak falsely and uh, s- still comply with a subpoena, and the, the, the remedy is perjury, not, not some uh, uh, immunity. The, the, the reason I emphasize truth-telling, Your Honor, is that the Court has done so. In uh, Doe 2, uh, it specifically uh, uh, talks about the question of whether you are relying on the witness's truth-telling to, to gain the evidence you seek. And if the answer is no, the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply. If the answer is yes, it does. It's also in Pennsylvania against Muniz. Both majority and dissent said the Fifth Amendment applies if the witness is confronted with the options of truth, falsity, or silence. And th- well, that that's is the, the cruel trilemma, which I think we've paid little attention to in the last few years. It, it was absolutely adopted as the standard in Pennsylvania against Muniz. 
And indeed, I believe the dissent also uh, referred to the truth, falsity, silence predicament. And our fundamental position under the Fifth Amendment is this, that where the government puts a person to two choices, one, tell the truth and risk losing your liberty, and two, commit the crime of falsification and maybe go free, the Fifth Amendment applies and extends the privilege of silence. What, what, what was the document involved in this case that's um, the least ordinary sort of document? Something, was there a diary or something like that? Or? I, I'm not sure I could pick out the least the, the, one, Your the, Honor. There was the, the an enormous is, is, is enormous quantity. There were uh, retainer agreements. They weren't regular. Sometimes some, for some clients there were some, for some there weren't. There were uh, documents reflecting the receipt of fees. Uh, they were also not regular, but, but there were an, a number of those. Uh, there was work product. The government was trying to find out whether he did work for various clients, so they wanted to know if there was work product. Well, so supposing this is an ordinary, uh, perhaps it was an ordinary income tax uh, fraud prosecution. I mean, uh, are, you, are you saying that the government cannot subpoena uh, tax returns and accounting returns and check records from, from someone who uh, it suspects of committing fraud? It, it absolutely can serve the subpoena, but if the witness claims the Fifth Amendment privilege and, and, and he, is, he is compelled to disclose the well, existence under immunity. Then, then, then Fisher becomes almost meaningless. I, I had thought that Fisher was a, a very significant repudiation of Boyd. It says that these documents are not incriminating. But by your test, you simply come around by another door and achieve the same result as Boyd. Uh, I, I think the answer is no, Your Honor, and this is the reason. I agree Fisher is a very significant case. And what it does by holding that the contents of the documents are not privileged is it means that the government can get them from a variety of other sources. And the owner and the person whose writing is on the document has no objection. And that's what the government usually does. Well, when you're you're saying contents, you mean the information contained. In other words, the information does not become immunized. Correct. Okay. Correct. So that the government, this is what they usually do. They'll they'll go to a small business and they'll give a subpoena to a bookkeeper or a secretary or a a document custodian, or or they will go to the other, if if it's a communication, they go to the other party to the communication, get the letter. If it's a financial transaction, they go to a bank, they get it from there. If it's another financial transaction, they go to the credit card. But the fact that the information is in the document subpoenaed, that remains subject to privilege. No. No. You can use the information when you get it from all of these other sources, yes. but you can't use the information uh, uh, as a result of its being contained in the subpoenaed document subject to the immunity grant. Yes, but I would put it a slightly different way. You can't compel over an immunity claim. You can't compel the subject of the investigation to tell you what documents exist and what documents yes, I, 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 I couldn't require a handwriting example, I guess, could you? You can uh, 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 command a handwriting example because this Court has said so. Well, but I, I mean, no, but you're, you're pushing the logic of it. I mean, really, your truth-telling test is simply the obverse sign of the foregone conclusion coin. Yes. I mean, they're both the same. Yes. And, and so is there any fallback position? That is to say, you, you, you push the logic for what it's worth. I, I, I see that. And is there any position 
that would reconcile these cases like I'm almost tempted to say you couldn't force people into lineups on that. Maybe, well, but, uh, maybe you could force Yeah, them. let me address that. I think it's important. Lineups might be, yeah. let, let me talk about that whole line of cases. And, of course, we know Schmerber is the beginning of it. The point about Schmerber is that the witness there could be the biggest liar or the biggest truth teller in the world, and you, the government will get the same blood. It is not relying on the truth-telling of the person at all. How about a voice exemplar? Give me all of the money. This is a robbery. And then he well, can't disguise his voice. Th- th- that's the assumption, I believe. It's not stated, but the assumption is they can't disguise their voice. And therefore, um, a, voice ex- a voice exemplar works regardless of the truth-telling of, of the witness. And handwriting, too. Yeah. And handwriting, that's the hardest case in this line, in my, in my opinion. But, and the Court doesn't explain the handwriting decision. It, it states in one, uh, in one uh, sentence, a mere handwriting exemplar, in contrast to the content of what is written, like the voice or the body itself, is an identifying physical characteristic. But if the handwriting can be disguised, then the handwriting example uh, would not be in the Schmirba line, and it would be in the document. It's the hardest case. However, I believe most handwriting experts will tell you they think they can detect, they think they can identify even an attempted disguise, sure. that there's involuntary. Well, what about business records, um, Mr. Niels? Yeah. Everyone knows that a business or a law firm keeps records. It keeps records of who the clients are and what the billings were and what was paid. It's a foregone conclusion that they do. Can the government subpoena those business records and fall within the bounds of Fisher? I think the answer is no, and I'd like to give two reasons. The simple, easy one, I think, is that uh, Doe 1 held no. And reason number two is the one that uh, Justice Breyer proffered, which is you may know that a person has records, but let's just assume there is one out-of-place smoking gun document in there. The government will only get it if the witness tells the truth and produces not only all the others, but that one, too. And, you know, we we civil litigators um, run up against this all the time. Responding to a subpoena is a truth-telling process. As Wigmore said, it relies on the witness's moral obligation to tell the truth. When we have a big uh, civil uh, document demand, you you, you get all these documents from the company, and you have to— hold the specs of the subpoena up against the documents, and you have to answer the question for every document, and it's a true-false question. Is this document called for by this subpoena? That's truth-telling. You, well, but in, a civil I, context, in the context of a law firm's records of clients and billings and payments, I, I, don't, I don't see that that necessarily follows. Well, in a law firm, uh, first of all, the Fifth Amendment privilege doesn't apply at all. That's Bellis, I believe. Um, and, and second, it, in any large business of any size at all, whether it's incorporated, unincorporated, partner, it is almost 100 percent of the time going to be easy for the government to, to find a document custodian, someone who has access to the documents, who deals with them on a regularized basis, from whom they can be subpoenaed. It's so you're saying the government should have called in some 
file clerks from the law firm and got Well, in this case, they didn't have that option because uh, in this case, uh, uh, my client's business had terminated over a year earlier. Uh, it was a very — there's no real facts in the record on this, Your Honor, but it was a — essentially a one-person uh, business. But in any event, it was over. He was incarcerated at the time, and the government — uh, simply had no idea whether he had any records or not. Did the government have enough here to get a um, search warrant? No, and they said so on the record. Could, could you — suppose you were to say, I, I'm hypothetically, I see the logic, I see it's there in the cases, uh, I see it's there in the purposes of the Fifth Amendment, but still wouldn't it work a revolution in what prosecutors and uh, defense lawyers alike have come to expect that the Fifth Amendment stands for? And revolutions don't take place ordinarily in the law, even if the, the, without them it's a little illogical, uh, at least, uh, et cetera. Could you expand a little on that theme? Yes. I'd like to make two points in response to that. One is it wouldn't re- uh, do a revolution at all. It would leave things virtually exactly the way they've been for the last century. Um, there has been no time at which over a Fifth Amendment claim unincorporated business records have been uh, routinely obtained by the government. The only time they've been obtained, and they've virtually never been obtained under immunity. The only but time... But, uh, Mr. O'Neill, let me interrupt. You're saying then that Fisher really didn't amount to much of anything uh, in overruling Boyd if the thing has been the same for the last century. The Fisher made a, a very important clarification that so-called private documents, unincorporated documents of an unincorporated entity, documents which might have the subjects writing on them. Fisher made it very clear that those documents were obtainable in any one of a variety of ways, not involve compelling self-incrimination, including search warrant. And Andresen was a, a, a decision this Court handed down the same term as Fisher, which relied on Fisher, that said a search warrant can be issued for uh, a person's documents, even though they may have private writings on them. So Fisher was an important case. But if the question is, has the Justice Department or, or anyone been routinely subpoenaing from the subject business records, the answer is no. Well, that's no, I, the, no. Breyer's question is, is, is being susceptible of that answer as well, that the revolution is, is, is if we sustain a subpoena of, of this breadth. But the question is, uh, what's the rationale we have for drawing the line be something that's, that's very specific and something that's this broad? I, I, I'm not sure what the rationale is. Well, the rationale, again, gets back to you ask the question, are you relying on the witness's truth-telling to get the evidence that you seek? And if the answer is yes, then the Fifth Amendment applies. I see that. Now, to apply that to outside the business record context, and is there a revolution there? I mean, after all, the same principle will apply whether it's a, a business record or any other kind of evidence uh, that the, uh, the person asserting the amendment has in his possession. I mean, so. pardon me for saying so, but I think that prosecutors all over the country would fall down dead if they thought that they could subpoena guns or, or uh, uh, incriminating bloody underwear or, or — Booty from hijacking. Yeah. I mean, it, it just uh, — it, it's completely unthinkable. And I would say this, too, while we're on the law enforcement topic. One of the things, not only is this immunity that they have issued here, according to their understanding of it, not only is it ineffective 
from my client's point of view, ineffective to meet the constitutional requirements. But it's ineffective from their point of view. It's, it's ineffective for law enforcement purposes. The wonderful thing about immunity for, for law enforcement is that it removes the witness's incentive to lie because it holds him harmless. It promises him he won't be prosecuted because well, of but, anything he turns but on. But in, in the first Doe case, um, it was business records, and the court said, fine, you can compel those and use the contents against the producer. I don't think so. I think in the first Doe case, the court held that the act of production is privileged, and the government, therefore, didn't get the documents. But it went on to say the contents of voluntarily prepared private papers enjoy no privilege. Yes, and, and, and that was also said in Fisher, and it's a very important and very true thing. But it doesn't answer the question of, of what do you do if the testimony you do compel leads you to documents. And, and in the example uh, the analogous to a gun where the, the crucial document is uh, some smoking gun document is possessed by the witness, if the witness is asked orally in the grand jury, is there such a document, where is it located, and the government goes and gets it, the document isn't privileged, but it's absolutely tainted and couldn't possibly be used. But getting back to the point I was making before, this kind of immunity says to a witness, witness, you are obligated to turn over all your documents, and if there are incriminating ones in them, I will use them to indict you. That is a terrible kind of immunity. It's not only ineffective for the Fifth Amendment, but it's, it's ineffective law enforcement that you want to be able to tell the witness, now that you're under immunity, you should give me all your documents because the only way you can get into trouble is, is, is to respond falsely. Well, you can do that. I mean, if they want to give them that immunity, they will. Well, they can do it, but not from state prosecutors. But you're saying it does convert law enforcement into an essentially inquisitorial system if it does you that do too. that. Would you explain the foregone conclusion doctrine uh, to me? And this, the reason I, I ask is this, to focus the question. Um, even in the case in which it is a foregone conclusion that some document exists, when the government subpoenas it and the subject of the subpoena hands it over, there at least is implicit testimony there uh, that they, the, the witness agrees the document exists, but, but more precisely, it, there's, there's always implicit testimony that the witness has the document under his control, and, and that's why he's able to, to hand it over. So that even in the case of the foregone conclusion, um, there is some testimonial aspect, and I suppose it's a testimonial aspect, uh, to which the, the later use of the, of the document can, can be traced. Uh, and yet, under the foregone conclusion doctrine, we say, well, it can be used anyway. Uh, the reason, I guess, is not that there is no conceivable use of testimony, but that because of the foregone conclusion, it's understood that the government could get it anyway by a different means, e.g., a Fourth Amendment search warrant. Am I right that it's kind of a, a harmlessness uh, uh, analysis? I think it has a harmlessness element to it, um, and I understand uh, Your Honor's point that there is, of course, nonetheless some implicit testimony, but I think the point of it is that the government isn't relying upon 
the witness's truth-telling. Well, then, well, in, 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 in the gun case, you really think the gun case comes out differently if, you know, the, the suspected murderer has shown the gun to somebody and then he runs off to a cabin in the woods? He has been surrounded ever since there. Then you know that the gun exists. You know that he has it somewhere in the cabin in the woods. He could have buried it somewhere. Search and seizure, you're never going to dig it up. In that case, since it's a foregone conclusion, you can require him to turn over the gun? I'm not sure, Your Honor. It seems very strange to me. It does not. Why not? It does seem strange. But Sorry, just in answering it, why why not? Well, the the only uh, case in this Court in which the foregone conclusion doctrine has been applied is one in which the parties conceded the existence and location of the documents and argued only about their contents. The, the, in, in Doe, the Court said existence and location was not conceded, and they held the Fifth Amendment applied. In this case, my client went in front of the grand jury and expre- expressly stated, I decline to say whether or not there are any documents. So you have some doubts about the foregone conclusion qualification. It may, it may only be an admission qualification it, it, rather than. It, it might, but I would suggest this. This is not a very good case to try to figure out exactly and announce exactly what the the rule is, exactly where you draw the line. Fisher said these cases should be decided on their own facts. And here we have no facts. The government did not even argue foregone conclusion in the lower court. There's no factual record about what they knew. And there won't ever be one because, as the court knows, the case is essentially over. But had there not been that stipulation, I take it the Court of Appeals left it subject to a a remand to get into that very issue. Get into that. And they they adopted a test which had previously been adopted by the Second Circuit, which is the government had to know the document's existence and possession with reasonable particularity. That that is a test that two courts of appeals have adopted. It strikes me as a more relaxed test than foregone conclusion, which is a pretty extreme-sounding phrase. Sounds more like Uh, the Fourth Amendment. It does sound more like Fourth Amendment. But what I would suggest here is that, that, that this isn't the case to lay down the exact standard, only to say that the analysis has to be are you relying on the witness's truth-telling to get the document? And if you are, it's testimony, and the Fifth Amendment applies. And if you only got an incriminating document because the witness told the truth, and you got it under immunity, you got to hold the witness harmless. You have to leave him, as Castigar said, as emphatically as Castigar could say, you must leave him after immunity in just as good a position as he would have been if he'd been left to his Fifth Amendment privilege. And under Doe, Mr. Hubble had a Fifth Amendment privilege not to tell whether he had any of these documents. Well, you would, you would, I guess it would be sufficient for you if we said, if the government is relying, then the government has a burden, if it still claims that it can use, it has a burden to come forward and show something. And maybe it would be enough for the government to say, uh, in fact, it's not relying that, uh, the, to, to rebut that conclusion. Uh, but it might also be enough if the government came forward, and this was the suggestion I was making, and said, 
we don't have to rely because we could have gotten it by Fourth Amendment means. Yes. But we don't, answer, we don't choose between those possibilities. That's correct. Yeah. The problem with the second one here is that the government — I expected, frankly, in the district court that we would get an inevitable discovery uh, position or a legitimate independent source position, but they didn't proffer either. They simply conceded that they had used the information compelled under immunity to bring this indictment. Thank you, Mr. Niels. Thank you, Your Honor. Case is submitted.